I encourage you to open up your scriptures, if you have them with you, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up this particular chapter. We're going to be talking about the comfort of Christ's coming this morning and why that is a comfort to us as believers, as those who have trusted Christ as Savior. Before we dive into the scriptures, let's open in a word of prayer this morning and let's get going. Christ, uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, all that you are doing in our lives, all that you're doing in our church. Thank you for each and every person that is here this morning. We thank you for those who are serving you in the nursery and in the children's ministries, pouring into the lives of these children. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to open up your word. And God, I pray that as we look into your scriptures this morning that we would be encouraged because this particular passage is meant for the encouragement of believers. And so, God, I pray that we would be encouraged as we look at this particular passage this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture, and we pray that you would use it to accomplish your purpose in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. It's not too difficult as we look around at the world that we live in right now and get discouraged with what we see around us. The uncertainty, we've, we've talked about that. We've come off of a year, a year and a half of uncertainty and challenge and difficulty. Many of us in this room over the last months may have lost a loved one and so have gone through difficult days there, have gone through surgeries, have battled illness. We look at the news and we see what's going on in countries like Afghanistan or Haiti and we can see the turmoil, the unrest. We hear of Christians in Afghanistan whose lives have been taken because they simply are followers of Jesus Christ in a country now run by those who would be against God, who would be against Jesus. And we can get pretty discouraged at what we see around us. It can look pretty hopeless at times. And we're going to be getting into a passage where the Corinthians or the Thessalonians were dealing with this. They were, they were wrestling with things that they were seeing around them and they were getting pretty discouraged. And Paul writes to them for the purpose of encouraging them, and he shares some truths that they needed to be reminded of to encourage them and to encourage each other with. Paul's going to be writing about future events. He's going to be writing about a very specific future event, Christ coming for his people. The problem is that for many of us, when it comes to the idea of future events and what the Bible talks about with future events, we sometimes have one of two reactions to this. One, you might say, comes from things like this. In 2005, Harold Camping predicted the second coming of Jesus to May 21st, 2011. It was 10 years ago. That date has come and gone, I think. We're all clear on that one? However, it's instances like this or book series about being left behind that tend to bring us to one of two reactions. We hear those kind of predictions and we hear those things come and go and the prediction doesn't come to pass. And we respond by 
saying, look, these eccentric people, they, they're date setters, they're, they're, they're trying to capitalize on future events, and so we just don't want to have to deal with the topic at all. I don't even want to get into that. You know, it's like a million books. When, I'm telling you, in 1999, when it was coming up to the turn of 2000, there was book after book after book on the end times. People trying to capitalize on that moving to the year 2000. And it's hard for us not to look at that and say, you know what, I'm, I'm just not interested in even getting into that subject matter because people are just trying to make money off of it. Or sometimes we go the opposite way, where instead of not wanting to deal with it at all, we delve into it and we get preoccupied with it and we <clears throat> get so wrapped up in the subject that we analyze every event that we hear about on the news so that we run the risk of missing the point of what the Bible is teaching when it's talking about future events. And so we're trying to figure out exactly who Gog and Magog are or, um, you know, who the two witnesses are that Revelation talks about. And it was interesting because I was having that conversation with somebody just recently. And people have different opinions on who those two individuals are going to be. And we get wrapped up oftentimes on who they are and, and miss the point of the fact that they're sharing the gospel and people are coming to know Christ because of their witness. And so sometimes we can get a little bit of preoccupation when it comes to this subject matter without really seeing the point behind it. And Paul makes it abundantly clear as he gets into this particular subject in a very brief way in this particular passage that his point is that believers are encouraged by what they are taught and that they would encourage one another. That's his point. It's said that one in every 30 verses in the Bible deals with end times. So it's not that the Bible doesn't see this as an important topic for us to look into. In fact, it's quite the opposite. See, the Thessalonians were looking at the world around them, and they knew that they had folks in their church who had died, and they were concerned that they were missing the return of Christ for His church, and they were concerned that these believers who had passed away were going to miss out on this event, and they were distressed, and in their heart for each other, Paul needs to write to them and bring some clarity and bring some understanding to them about what's going on. Paul has great concern for these believers that they understand the truths of Scripture. By the way, it's not that they didn't know that there were future events going to be happening. It's not that they were completely oblivious to the things that were going to be coming. They might not have known all the information, but they knew some. How do we know this? Because Paul, in different statements in Thessalonians, already alludes to the fact that there are things that are going to be happening in the future. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That would be a future event. Paul's saying, hey, the Lord Jesus is going to come back for His church, and He's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. In chapter 2, verse 19, He says this, For who is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? So Paul says, look, Jesus is coming back. 
And we talked about the fact that those believers are a crown of rejoicing for Paul and Silas and Timothy because they had the privilege of leading these people to Christ. In chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says this, May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So Paul's already alluded to these coming events to the Thessalonians. But now they're getting a little bit, of, a little bit panicky here. Hey, have we missed it? Has Jesus come back and we haven't seen it? What about our, unsa- or our, belie- our saved friends who have passed away? What about them? What's going to happen with them? And they're getting concerned, and Paul says, I-, I-, I need to write to you guys and instruct you guys on what's going on. Paul encourages these believers of Christ coming for his saints through three fundamental truths. First, we're going to look at the death of Christ and why that's so significant. We're going to talk, secondly, of the resurrection of Christ, and thirdly, the revelation of Christ, and how each of these three truths help the the believers in Thessalonica and us as well see the significance of Christ's coming for His saints. Now, if you are listening carefully, I'm saying this phrase very specifically. I'm saying Christ's coming for his saints. We need to understand the distinction between two phrases used in the New Testament. There's one, the term Christ's coming for his saints, which is also called the rapture or parousia, and Christ's coming with his saints, which is oftentimes called the revelation or the epiphany. See, when we talk about the rapture, and we need to understand this, and I, I'm going I'm to make this point a little bit more later on as we work through this passage, but what I do need to say is this. Okay, we're going to be talking about the rapturing of the church, Christ taking His church or gathering His church to be with Him. Not every believer in the Christian faith believes in the rapture. There are plenty of learned, solid, Bible-believing Christians that have different views on the end times than what we might teach here. That is not something that we are to fight over. It might be something that we can debate and discuss and enjoy fellowship over and digging into Scriptures. But as Paul says here to these believers, this is something that is meant to be an encouragement, not a division. And so we need to understand that, but I'm going to be coming from the perspective that Paul here in this particular passage is talking about the rapture, Jesus coming and gathering his saints to be with him, and that there is scripture that lends to that and promotes that idea. And Paul is going to work through that in a logical sequence, and we're going to look at that through the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the revelation of Christ this morning. So let's get into the particular passage, and then we'll break this down as we go. I want you to look at verse 13 with me. It says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. We who are still alive at the, com at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul makes some very clear statements here. Now, we need to understand something. For those of you that know your scriptures well, you guys might already be thinking of particular passages, one being Matthew 24 and in, Luke, and, and in Mark chapter 13 where there is um, verses that talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. I'm quite sympathetic to what Dr. William Evans says in his book, The Great Doctrines of the Bible. He makes this point. Just as the first coming of Christ spanned 30 years and included Events like Christ's birth and baptism, ministry, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, etc. The second coming of Christ will also include a number of events such as the rapture, the great tribulation, the specific second coming of Jesus, the millennium, the judgments, etc. Sometimes we run across passages that talk about the second coming and we find them confusing or difficult to connect with Subjects like the rapture. And I quite like the, the point that Dr. Evans makes that we need to understand that the events of the second coming, and sometimes as it's described as the second coming, are really covering a variety of events in that whole span of time. And yet we look at it sometimes as one single event, and it causes confusion for us. We need to keep focused on the way that the Word of God is just expressing things so that we can understand it better. Let's look at what Paul says here as he kind of dives into this. There's some things that he is addressing right off the bat. He doesn't want these believers to be uninformed. He says, we, so that would be him and Silas and Timothy, right? The three that have ministered to this church and had the opportunity to share the gospel with these believers. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who were asleep. Every commentary I read in, in preparation for this message all made the same point. And I thought, do they really need to make this point? And then I got thinking, you know what? Probably smart that they make the point. So I'm going to make the point. It's not my own point. But the commentators make a clear distinction so that we understand that when these believers are described as people being asleep, they are dead. But he, this passage is not talking about an, an erroneous teaching by some religious groups called soul sleep. And that teaching is this, that when somebody dies, their physical body goes into the grave, and that their soul is more or less in a suspended animation situation until Christ comes back and then they're reunited with their body and then they can spend eternity with God. This passage is not teaching that, nor does the Bible teach that in any way, shape, or form. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, and in one verse makes it abundantly clear how this actually works. In verse 8, he says this, In fact, we are confident 
and we would prefer to be away from the body, that would be dead, and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul makes it abundantly clear that if I'm absent from this body, I'm present with the Lord if I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so it's not the idea that the soul is sleeping or something. He's using a phrase to describe believers who have passed away, but it's interesting why he uses that phrase, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But I want you to think about why is he using the word asleep instead of dead? But that's what he means, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Paul's reminding these Thessalonians, or he's addressing the the fact that in the Thessalonian time, as in our time, those who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ those who either don't believe that there is a God, that, doesn't, that don't believe that there's an afterlife, or those that believe in a variety of gods, but as all of those religions boil down to it, it's all a works-based salvation. I've got to try to earn my way to this deity. I've got to make myself pleasing to this God somehow. That when those people pass away, there is no hope. And that the grief that they experience is unlike the grief that a believer experiences. Think about that for a second. If I believe that this is all I've got, my four score and ten, 70 years, just for you guys that don't use scores anymore. If all I got is my 70 plus years and then I'm done. If my relative has just the the time that they've got here on this earth and then they're done. That's some heavy grief because I will never see that believer ever or that, that, that relative ever again. This time that I've got is all I've got. And it's not surprising that people on a regular basis struggle with the loss of a loved one when they don't have anything to focus on when it comes to eternity. What about those that strive and strive and strive to earn their way to God? It's interesting. I've had conversations with people that have that mentality. Hey, do you, do you believe that Jesus is, is, is the Son of God? Yep, I've had this conversation with people. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that you're going to go to heaven? I think so. Well, why do you think so? Well, because I think I've got to earn my way. I, if I go to church enough, if I give my tithes enough, if I help old ladies across the street enough, then maybe God will be pleased with me and hopefully I'll be able to spend eternity with him. If you go to your grave with that kind of mentality, without that kind of assurance, the grief is overwhelming because you don't know for sure. Your relative is looking, well, they hoped that they were going to get there. They weren't sure though. They tried to do their best, but I know my relative, they weren't perfect. And those in Paul's day at this point, it's the same mentality. They believe that here was all that they had. Or they believe that maybe 
they would spend eternity with their God, but they weren't sure. And when their loved ones died, the grief was overwhelming. But Paul says, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. As believers, we don't have to grieve in that same way. Yes, we grieve. Yes, our hearts are broken because we're separated with those that we love. But there is that confidence that someday we will spend eternity with them in the presence of Almighty God when we've trusted Christ as our Savior, when they've trusted Christ as their Savior. Paul says, you don't need to grieve like those who have no hope. Why does he say that? How can he say that then? He reminds them of why this is such an important and confident thing that he can say. Verse 14, he says this, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again the same way through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Just so that you understand, Paul's making a logical progression here, okay? He's working through a logical sequence. He's not saying, if, if we believe. He's not questioning whether or not these believers, these people are actual saints, that they, he's not questioning whether or not they've actually trusted Christ as their Savior. He knows that, the, he, that they have. He's actually celebrated that earlier on in the book. What he's doing is he's making a logical progression. He's saying, how can I be confident in this? How can I be confident that when Jesus comes back for his saints, that we're going to go and meet Christ in the clouds and we're going to be forever with him? How can I know that for sure? He says this, if we believe that Jesus died, Proof number one, point number one. If we believe that Jesus died, we understand this, that Christ's death satisfied the demands of a righteous, holy, and just God. Paul's bringing them back to the gospel that they've heard. He's like, folks, remember, we're sinful people. We were born with sinful natures. Nobody had to teach us to be rebellious against God. Nobody had to teach us that we were going to live our lives our way. No matter what God said, we are going to do it the way that we want to do it. And the older I get, and the times that I do things that I'm not supposed to do, that comes back to me more and more and more deeply. That those times when I don't obey God and I sin, and I take a step back because the Holy Spirit is, is bringing that to my attention, more and more God's confronting me with the fact that it's my rebellion against God that causes that. That I'm going to do what I want to do and not what God tells me to do. And each and every one of us have that ingrained in us at birth. And when we come to grips with the fact that we are rebellious against God and that we need to believe Jesus as our Savior, that we need to confess our sins to Him and that Jesus save us from our sins, then we are His. The Bible declares that we are children of God and that Christ's death satisfied those demands of a righteous, holy God in paying the full penalty of a believer's sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, He made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christians have been made acceptable to God and fit 
to be gathered into his presence because of what Christ has done for us. Christ who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might live for righteousness. 2 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds we have been healed. How is it that we can spend eternity with God? How is it that we can be gathered to Christ when he comes back for his church? Because Christ died on the cross for our sins and when we've put our faith and trust in that, We're going to spend eternity with Christ. It's interesting that T.E. Wilson notes this, death has been changed to sleep for believers by the work of Christ. It is an apt metaphor in which the whole concept of death is transformed. Think about it in light of this particular verse. Verse Corinthians 15, 54, and 55, it says this, when this corruptible body this broken down body, this body that's decaying, this body that has infirmities, is clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body is clothed in immortality. Then the saying that was written will will take, take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Where is your death? Where, where death is your sting? You know what, for a believer, death really is more like sleep because it's not the final state for us. Christ demonstrated that he had victory over sin and death and hell. And so to encourage these believers, Paul uses the word sleep because really death is much like that. Because death is not victorious over believers any longer. Number two, the resurrection of Christ. Paul goes back to, he says, you know what, because Christ died on the cross for our sins and we've trusted Christ as Savior, we can spend eternity with God. But he says, you know what, proof number two, the resurrection of Jesus. You want to know proof that we are going to be resurrected? Jesus was resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus indicates that the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice, enabling him to justify those who have faith in him. In the same way, Paul says this in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, he connects Christ's resurrection to our resurrection in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How can I know that I'll be resurrected in the last day? Because Jesus was resurrected. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that he is the first fruits of them that slept. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53, Paul says this, What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. By the way, when he uses that phrase, a mystery is this. It's a concept that he's teaching believers in the New Testament that was previously shadowed in the Old Testament. 
something that was not fully developed in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, I, I'm, t- I'm telling you a mystery. Here's the mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed in immortality. Because Jesus was risen from the dead, so we will be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says this, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says this, For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus and present us, excuse me, raise us with Jesus and present us to you. Our resurrection to be gathered to Christ at His coming is a guarantee because Christ rose from the dead. And thirdly, Paul says, through the revelation of Christ, he's telling them this information. He's helping them understand this. He says, for we say this to you by the word of the Lord. This is something that Paul lets him know God has revealed to him through the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm telling you this because God has told me this and I'm conveying this to you folks. That we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul says, you know what? The Lord revealed this information to me. I'm sharing this with you, that this is how it's going to work. Here are the the basics of how it's going to work. The Jesus return for his saints is going to be three things, bodily, personal, and visible. Bodily, personal, invisible. What's he say? Jesus returns for us in a recognizable way. He says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. There's not going to be any question on who's coming back. It's going to be Jesus. He's going to come back bodily. We're going to be able to recognize him for who he is, Jesus Christ. He's coming back personally. He come back, comes back himself for his people. This is a contrast, just so you know, and I encourage you to look into it. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, or you look at Mark chapter 13, you're going to have a description that sounds similar to this, but there's a number of differences in those passages. Because that, those passages talk about the second coming of Christ, not the rapture of the church. And one of the key differences is this, that though it says that Christ is coming in the clouds, there's no indication in those passages that the believers are actually going to be caught up with him. And instead, what that passage of Scripture talks about is the fact that he sends angels out to gather the elect, which is significantly different than what's talked about here, because here it talks about the fact that Jesus is personally gathering up his saints, He is not sending somebody else to do that. He's doing that himself. 
it connects well with John 14, 1 through 3, where Jesus says this. And I want you to hear this because sometimes we float over this because we want to get to a particular verse. In verse 6, and we miss the first three verses, Jesus says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Same idea as what Paul's saying to his believers in Thessalonica. I want you to be encouraged here, folks. Paul says, don't, or Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare it for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you will be there also. Paul, or Jesus is coming back personally for his saints. Lastly, it's a visible return. There are those that are <clears throat> maybe less sympathetic to uh, the teachings about the rapture in Scripture, the pre-tribulation rapture as we would call it, who would say, well, you know, come on. You know, so there's going to be a secret, you know, calling just one, one second the believers are there and the next second the believers are gone. And nobody knows what's going on. By the way, there's a popular book series and movie series that kind of implies that. This passage does not imply that at all in any way, shape, or form. This isn't some secret rapture. This is a visible rapture. Scriptures make it abundantly clear the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I think if the Lord's going to shout, people are going to know. That's just my personal opinion, but I think I can pretty, pretty well say that definitively. If God's going to shout, people are going to pay attention. It's a shout. In some versions of Scripture, and many of you might have a version that says, instead of the word shout, the word command, it's, it carries with it a military aspect. It's the idea of calling troops to fall in line. When God commands, his believers are ready for action. It's the same idea of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. In John 14, or excuse me, John 11, 43, what does Jesus do when he approaches the tomb after everybody says, hey, don't, don't go near there. He's been in the grave for, for, for four days. He stinks. And Jesus approaches the tomb, and what does Jesus do? He shouts. He says, Lazarus, come out. And what does Lazarus do? He's resurrected and walks out of the grave. It's the same idea. There's a shout, a command by Jesus. It's the voice of the archangel. By the way, if you looked at the actual Greek, it's the voice of an archangel. We don't know how many archangels there are. If you ask the Jewish community, they'll say that there's seven or something. We have one recorded in Scripture for us. We don't know if it's Michael the archangel that shouts or if it's a different one. All we know is that the archangel is going to shout along with it. And then you have the trumpet of God. And just so that we understand things, trumpets, especially in the Old Testament with God's people, were used for a variety of things. They celebrated or, or um, called for the Israel's feasts. S uh, trumpets were used for celebrations, for con convocations. They were used to sound the alarm in times of war. They were used to gather a crowd and to make an announcement. 
what I think is fairly safe to say is this. When God blows his trumpet, it is to assemble his people and to declare their deliverance. That he has come back for his saints, that he's bringing them to himself. That where he is, we can be also. It is a bodily, personal, visible return for his church. Paul says, what's the point of all this? Why am I telling you all this information? Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. We are to encourage each other with these words. Hey, Jesus is coming back for his saints. Hey, the world that we are in right now, as terrible as it is, as difficult as it is, as sinful as it is, we have something much better to look forward to. Eternity with Christ. Paul made it abundantly clear at the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It could be that Paul's talking about the wrath that God pours out on an unsaved world in the final judgment. Paul could also be alluding to the fact that God at some point is going to pour out his wrath on lost, unsaved, godless nations who want to have nothing to do with him. And that happens at the second coming of Jesus. And it's important for us to keep something in mind. One way or another, we're going to experience Jesus' return either in gathering his church at the rapture or in judging the nations at his second coming. But one way or another, everybody in this room is going to experience it one way or the other. My encouragement to you is this. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me strongly encourage you that today needs to be the day of your salvation. To come to that point where you realize that you are a sinful person that you in your natural state are contrary to God. You don't want God to rule, run your life. You want to run your own life. Even if you think that your life is pretty good and that you are a fairly moral person and that you're doing a pretty good job, at the end of the day, it's still God Almighty who should be the one that's running our lives. And when you recognize that rebellion against God, that sin against God, confess it. Trust Jesus Christ to save you from your sin so that when you meet Christ, it would be him coming and gathering you as one of his saints, not as someone who is going to be experiencing the wrath of Almighty God, as someone who has rebelled against him, who has been an enemy of his, who has thumbed their nose at God and said, I don't want you to have anything to do with my life. Because when Jesus comes that second time, He's coming to pour out God's wrath on a world that's rebellious against him. Let me encourage you not to be here when that happens. Here's the thing, folks. Scripture tells us enough regarding the time of Christ's coming to satisfy our faith, not to satisfy our curiosity. We can read these passages and speculate all we want, but we have enough information that we need to satisfy our faith. 
And that's a significant thing for us to keep in mind. Though there are those that wouldn't necessarily agree with my perspective on this, and I appreciate the fellowship that I have with those believers, it is not a point of division where we have issues with other Christians that might see it a different way. It is something that we are to encourage each other with. And I challenge you that in light of what we are talking about this morning, are you focused on the fact that Jesus will come back? Because here's the thing. These Thessalonians, they were awfully concerned about the fact that they had missed Jesus' return for them. They were concerned about people in their church and how that that would have played out for them. They were concerned with the people in their communities about whether or not they trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior and were going to be able to experience this. How do I know this? Because Paul's already commended this church for going out throughout Macedonia and sharing the gospel and seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior. Why? Because they knew that someday Jesus was coming back. And they wanted people to be ready for his return. Are we as a body of Christians here today living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any time? Because Paul and the Thessalonians here, they lived as if any day was the day that Jesus was coming back. They weren't preoccupied with the things that trap us, that get us bogged down on this life, that preoccupy us for our four score and ten that at the end of it all don't matter for eternity. These Christians were more worried about, am I ready when Jesus comes back? Am I ready to stand before Christ? Have I shared the gospel as much as I possibly can? Have I served God as faithfully as I can? See, we're pretty content sometimes to say, look, I've served my time serving the Lord. Hey, I've done my bit. Now I'm going to relax. No, this is not for me. If I can bring it into our context, we can look at it and say, that equipped to serve day, that's not for me. I've done, my, I've, I've done my thing. I've done my part. All my service is not all that important. I don't need to be there. My question is, are you serving God right up to the minute that Jesus comes back or your life on this earth is done? Are you saying, you know what? kind of done my 30 years. Or, hey, Jesus doesn't need me. He's got more qualified people than me to serve him. See, we need to be encouraged that Jesus is coming back, but the challenge is this. Are we living in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back? And how does that shape the way that we live our lives? Am I living it for me right now, or am I living it in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back?